Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. My name is Nicholas Badminton, I'm a futurist. I help my clients look out 5, 10, 20 years into the future so they can create bolder visions, strengthen strategic planning and anticipate risk. And I'm very excited today to have Rotem Petranka on the Exponential Minds podcast with me. Rotem has a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Toronto and an MA in Social Psychology from York University. He's currently a PhD student at York's Clinical Psychology Program, and his main area of research is effect regulation and the way it interacts with the sustained attention, mind wandering, and creativity. Rotem co-founded the Psychedelic Studies Research Program at the University of Toronto and the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Science. And he's a pioneer in the study of microdosing psychedelics using modern rigorous research methods. He also feels strongly that the principles of open science are necessary in order to do good research. Is currently in the process of starting the first lab study of microdosing in Canada. Rotem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Nick. It's, uh, it's good to have you here, and uh, like we always do, I'd love, to, I'd love you to give us a little bit of your background and how you sort of ended up in this area of, of focusing a lot of your work in looking at microdosing and psychedelics. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been interested in um, kind of mind-expanding techniques, uh, often referred to as psychotechnologies, for a long time. I started um, meditating when I was 19. Um, and yeah, um, I also had a, a pretty meaningful near-death experience when I was in my early 20s. So I was always kind of into these kind of ways of um, mapping consciousness, expanding consciousness. And so um, some years ago when I heard through a friend that um, that they're starting a reading group about psychedelics with, with all the psychedelic renaissance that is going on right now, um, I said, hey, sure, I'll join your reading group. And then when I joined the reading group, I realized that we could be doing this research. We don't just need to, you know, read about it. And so that uh, is when I started with um, my colleague, Thomas Anderson, our research group. It's kind of interesting in sort of the mid 2000s, very much like you, I sort of had an awakening. I didn't have a near death experience, but very much I had some PTSD that was fixed using uh, EMDR and it was like wow okay the, the mind is, is sort of malleable you can do some things with this and uh, nevertheless I, I went off to uh, to e explore and experiment and then talk to people that were were trying to you know map that consciousness expand the mind you know fix trauma and a number of different things but you know transhumanism biohacking became more popular in sort of the early to mid 2000s but I knew it from like the counterculture. So, you know, hackers and artists and creatives, you know, they were sourcing LSD on the, on, on the dark web and they were, you know, even synthesizing psilocybin or grinding down the mushrooms that they were buying illegally. And they were experimenting with microdosing all the way up to, you know, accountants and big four consultancies. And, you know, I had a friend lean over to me in a, in a meeting. We we're talking about the future of retail and before her, 
partner came in, you know, the boss. She was like, Nick, I've been microdosing uh, like uh, mushrooms for about for about three weeks now. I said, how's that going? She goes, sometimes it takes a little while to get out the house if I get the dosing wrong, but mostly it's great. So, so we're finding ourselves now in, in this interesting world where we're now today, research organizations, universities, private companies are getting licenses to grow, extract, synthesize, you know, ketamine, MDMA, DMT, LSD, psilocybin for research and eventual commercial purposes. I mean, why the big change? Why is this renaissance sort of underway? Wow, that's an excellent question. And I think it's something that a lot of um, bigger brains than mine are trying to currently figure out. Um, I think it's, I can give you my two cents. And again, I, I should preface by saying I'm, I'm more in the science. I'm not so much, I don't understand society so much, but my uh, running theory is that this is related to the, um, what's referred to as the meaning crisis. Um, we have a problem in society. It's been growing. Um, you know, we, we have forgone um, our traditional institutions of wisdom, such as, uh, you know, our religions, um, our, um, tribes or families um and a lot of our just traditions we have kind of left them behind and we have not really taken up anything else to give us meaning to our lives like what do you get up for in the morning you know if if you know that in the end you're going to die anyway then none of this matters then you are this is a slippery slope to an existential crisis and deep depression and so i think that um Actually, Michael Pollan said, I think, in his uh, book, uh, I think he very astutely observed that this is psychedelics are kind of um, they, they give you a direct experience of what before you were supposed to believe that your priests and rabbis and all your other religious leaders, they had the direct experience and they related to you and the psychedelics, you can really experience it for yourself. And I think that it is in a way it provides an antidote to this felt sense of meaninglessness. All of a sudden you're in direct communion with the ineffable and you feel at one with the world, right? These are things that keep coming up uh, in the context of psychedelics. So I think that, um, I mean, I know for a fact that we are in the midst of a major mental health crisis. It is only getting worse. And I think that we're, as a society, we're at the point where we say, you know what, some things may have been taboo, but we're still willing to give them a shot because we are at our wits end. And so in a way, you know, we're, we've hit rock bottom as a culture. So it's kind of an exciting time because it's hopefully all up from here. It seems like the kids are more willing to try this stuff and, and not be, you know, <laughs> I grew up in sort of Prozac nation, you know, everyone needs to feel better. Here's a convenient uh, tablet from big pharmaceuticals, whether that's Prozac or any, any, any other sort of SRI. And, you know, and, and now the kids are like, hey, actually, there, there are these natural things that, that, you know, I can experiment with. I know LSD is synthesized, but you know, things like D DMT, things like psilocybin are out there in nature. And a lot of people are saying things, things like these and peyote and whatever were like the birth of all religion, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. Moses sees the burning bush. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But it's kind of, it, what, what's interesting is what you're looking at with, with your work in, in microdosing is, is, you know, this isn't about 
everyone having a massive epiphany and suddenly the world changes you know every week or so because of you know some sort of deep you know epic dose of, of, of psychedelic this is more about microdosing right and you talk about you know you're doing studies into personality mental health creativity you know can you take us through a little bit of, of of some of the studies you've been running and what you've been finding sure um i do just want to start by saying like responding to the bigger um topic that you kind of hinted at it's weird it's weird that microdosing works it's weird because the running theory right now in the psychedelics um, community is that you need to have this major epiphany. You need to really take a large dose and that's what's going to get you good and sober somehow. And with microdosing, you uh, you ostensibly feel nothing. So maybe it's all just chemistry. Maybe it's just the new Prozac. Um, and I think that that's interesting. I don't have a horse in this race. I am, I let the data lead me. Um, but I think that if this is the case, then we kind of need to rewrite the theory of psychedelics as we know it. Um, it's interesting because I, I read sort of the psychedelic explorers guy with James Fardyman back in the day, and he's been around for a long, long time and sort of pushing, you know, the microdosing perspective, right? You know, the psychedelic coffee, <laughs> as it were, some people call it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, what, what are you finding, uh, Rodson? Yeah. So overall we're finding that, so yeah, we're finding that people are people who microdose fare better than people who don't microdose. That's the kind of big picture. We, we also find that people who, um, the, the benefits that people experience from microdosing, um, the most common benefits are, uh, well, the first one by far is improved um, mental health. People just feel better. And then people also report that they're more productive and kind of have better attention um, ability, which is, I think, something that a lot of people are after these days because, yeah, for sure you have the mental health crisis, but then you have people that always want to be more productive. And I think this also speaks to the biohacking community, right? We, we're looking to optimize our performance. Yeah. Um, and then the third one, which I think is kind of, um, maybe it speaks to both, to flourishing and to mental health, is creativity. People are saying that they're more creative when they microdose. And as far as I know, no, I take it back. There are two studies that show that people who microdose are more creative. One is ours, uh, that actually we, we used a task to show, uh, to examine it. And we saw that microdosers were indeed more creative. There's another one from the Netherlands um, where they had they administered microdoses during um, kind of like a mushroom conference just to uh, enthusiasts and people who took psilocybin uh, performed better on creativity tasks just after taking the substance. So I think that these are pretty promising results in terms of creativity. I think it's also important to um, mention the negative side effects. Um, so our participants have reported um, generally not a lot. Um, there was a, a paper that was published, I think, a couple of weeks ago that, that I was uh, first author on where I think something like 50% of participants or sorry, 50% of reports were there are no negative side effects, uh, which is pretty huge, especially if you consider that um, 
microdosing may be better at improving mood than existing antidepressants. And existing antidepressants are, um, you know, they're substances that cause you to gain weight, lose your sexual appetite, and kind of not care about life anymore. And from time to time, they also improve your mood. So if microdosing doesn't have these side effects, then that already uh, puts it at, at, at an advantage uh, in comparison. Um, I think another important, um, and, or rather interesting at least, um, finding that we have from our recent um, survey is that um, intention doesn't work for microdosing the way we expect it to. So again, going back to the way um, the existing psychedelic theory is that when you uh, approach, when, when you are about to take a psychedelic, you need to set an intention and you need to, uh, and if you experience bad things, you need to lean into it, right? You don't want to avoid it because you can't escape it. Um, and what we found is that we asked people, why did you start microdosing? And we tried to um, have kind of approach motivations and avoid motivations. So an example of an approach motivation is I want to feel more positive feelings. And an example of an avoid motivation is I want to feel less negative feelings. And we expected that people who had an approach motivation would experience more benefits because that's the running theory. And we found the opposite. We found that people who wanted to just get stuff away from them. So people who wanted to, instead of, you know, having better, um, a better life, they wanted to have less of a bad life. Those people had better outcomes. Um, so this is really preliminary and should be taken with a grain of salt, but I think it's interesting. And this is something that we intend to look into more in future studies. It's kind of like leaning into the trauma, right? I mean, we, we, there's there's discussions of multi-generational uh, trauma, a bunch of epigenetics and, and a bunch of things that I've, I've been playing with NLP and whatever breath work. But, you know, really, oftentimes people just go in, you know, with an experimental mind, but really the people that do go in with, you know, oh, I, I've got this particular trauma, I've got this particular issue, I've got this particular thing it, it you know the people i've spoken to that go into ayahuasca retreats or the people that go into you know sort of the more epic dosing shamanic or guided guided journeying in a way seem to get into it and oftentimes people leave without <laughs> actually you know getting rid of those negative feelings of dealing with it they just got a, a deeper level of, of understanding so i mean back to microdosing as well so you're saying that if, if you, you know, with the preliminary results, if you, if you enter, you know, a regime of microdosing maybe for 10 days or, or whatever, with the idea that you just want to address negative emotions. So you're, you're kind of starting to find that, that, that people are generally with, with that set setting and intention are, are finding a, a new and better way of dealing with life. Yes. Yeah, and I think so we tried to explain this finding because it was really surprising. So we tried to explain it in a few different ways. And I think that the probably the most likely thing is that if you say I want to feel better, it's kind of hard to quantify and assess how much better you're feeling. Right. And if you yeah. say I want to use less substances or uh, something like that, um, then it's much easier for you to then say, yeah, I did get the thing that I wanted out of it. 
I think that it's also possible that um, some of the, you know, some be some health behaviors that are bad, they have serious downstream effects. So if you're using substances in a way that's unhealthy, then that probably is affecting your sleep and your productivity and your mood and a variety of other things. And then if you've treated just that one important thing upstream, you get all these benefits downstream. So it may have biased the way we analyzed uh, the responses we got. But yeah, I think that if you approach it with kind of a concrete thing that you want to tackle, then you are more likely to get benefits. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, from this research, you know, where, where do we end up? Because you know, are we going to end up with, uh, you know, off, off the shelf, you know, psychedelics where people can literally take something on a, on a per day basis without prescription? Will it be doctor prescribed? I mean, we know that the sort of the more traditional medical community is still hugely skeptical on this, right? You know, I mean, what, what's the timelines looking like? Is, is this like two or three years away? I was just um, I was just reading about Numinous, which is a company ba based out of Vancouver, BC, and I know some of the people there. You know, they've got a license to, you know, to legally harvest psilocybin from mushrooms and a, a license for, I think, MDMA and DMT and all the usual suspects as well. And, and that's a step in the right direction. You've got Field Trip, which is a company out of the States, which is, you know, guided, guided you know, psychotherapy and thera therapeutics, right? I mean, I, I'm trying to work out where we're going because it, it seems like preliminary research and all, everything I've read over the last 10 years seems that this is a really, really smart idea for a lot of people versus going down the, the, the pharmaceutical route, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I just... Uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Field Trip are a Toronto-based company. Oh, they Toronto-based. Um, yeah, excuse yeah. me. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question you're asking. I think, yeah, um, it has been my experience. I've spoken to a lot, a lot of physicians and press and just you know, regular lay people, regular folk, um, and I don't think that people are. Um, cautious about this at all. I think people are extremely optimistic about the promise of psychedelics. I think that the polit politics are taking a little bit longer than what I would expect considering the promise and considering the uh, political will. Um, I think the public is really ready for this and is really cheering this on. Um, but I think it's going to take probably five more years I think in Canada, I think in the States, they're really close. They, the uh, psilocybin has breakthrough therapy status. Um, right. And yeah, and, um, USONA are pushing very, very strongly to get that uh, finalized. So I think they're probably closer in the States, but you know, they have a different model than the way we do in Canada and in other uh, European countries in terms of you know healthcare. I think they're highly profit motivated because, I mean, for obvious reasons. Um, I don't know how uh, legislation would go. I don't know how this, these substances are going to be regulated. Uh, and I think that's anyone's guess. Um, but I'm, my perception, you know, you can get LSD now illegally for, what, $5 a hit. You can get um, psilocybin mushrooms for, I don't know what they cost, but also not a ridiculous amount of money. So right. I believe that even, w so if, if, what happens is that these substances become legal, but you know, only in pharmaceutical forms. I think the black market will continue to thrive. Yeah. 
and that's what we're finding with uh, with edible <laughs> edible edibles and cannabis and all that the black market is still there and it's still thriving and whatever i mean there are still stores that you can go into in various parts of canada and go up to and you can you can you can buy cannabis and you can also buy mushrooms you can buy peyote you know, I, I lived in Vancouver for about 11 years, so it's a little bit like that out there, right? Um, it, it, it's kind of interesting to me. For, for me, you know, when I have a conversation with older people, you know, 60s, 70s, 80-year-olds, you know, there's still this huge stigma because, like, in the 60s, you know, the American government was, was uh, experimenting with psychedelics. Even, like, at the University of Saskatchewan, I think there was a researcher there chatting to uh, Aldous Huxley, and they came up with the term psychedelic. Mm -hmm. as part of their conversation but suddenly it all got shut down because you know hey man like the kid the kids are like tuning uh tuning in and dropping out and they're, they're switching on you know timothy leary like follow the pied piper and and suddenly you know the, this smear campaign <laughs> on all yeah. of this has sort of left this this cultural this this cultural sort of uh problem as well and as soon as you chat to like a 60 70 year old that's actually done an ayahuasca retreat or they've done some psilocybin or even they've done some ed ed edible uh, cannabis uh, sort of you know just to help with with mood or whatever everything changes i think we've forgotten of, of the beauty and, and the, the possibility here but with this with this with this route i mean what 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 world do you want to see uh, you know with psychedelics integrated into it yeah I'm, I've been initially when I started doing this research, I was really hoping that I'd be able to stay non-political and just, you know, right. do the research and keep my head down and not talk about politics. But um, yeah, I don't think that it's realistic so much anymore. <laughs> right. um, I think that Mark Hayden from Maps Canada has a good idea about um, maybe getting something like akin to a driver's license where you go, you see a therapist, and they make sure that you're sound of mind, and then you get a license to purchase psychedelics um, for a few years, and then you have to come back for a checkup from time to time. I think that is quite reasonable. Um, ultimately, I don't know that we need to be regulating substances. I think that it kind of flies in the face of what we, like, if we believe in democracy, if we believe that every single adult is intelligent and has agency, then we need to trust them to, and we, we trust them to eat properly and drink and all that stuff. Then we, sh and you know, people can buy as much coffee as they want and coffee can absolutely kill you and the same for alcohol. So if we trust people with those substances, we should be able to trust people with other substances too, or we need to decide that we don't trust people and we want to be a different kind of society. So I think that if we want to keep being a democracy, if we, if we like the logical conclusion to um, assuming that people are agentic and intelligent is that they need to be able to do what they want as long as they're not harming anyone else. And this sort of brings us on to talk about, you know, what we talked about at the beginning when I was, when I was reading, reading out your biography, open science, the, the importance mm -hmm. of open science. I mean, and, and the ability to, to have people that are, openly experimenting i mean when when i went to school in the uk i grew up in the southwest and very rural magic mushrooms grew all over my my school uh, rugby pitch right uh, and you know nice. <laughs> literally but, but, it's, but you know out here in ontario a lot of places in the world you go out into the wild and these things live out there but the idea of open science is that anyone could find that and then go away and start to establish their own practice of of 
of discovery, right? So how does how does open science play into this? Because that directly uh, is an affront to big pharmaceuticals, you know, more, 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 more equity, more, more access to product, less, uh, less need to pay a lot of money for it. And even, even provide provision of this stuff for free. Right? Agreed. Um, honestly, my perspective on open science is more from, it's more because of how important it is to have these, uh, this set of practices so that our findings are reliable and consistent. Um, I think I'm also, I, I believe fundamentally that we should be sharing everything, everything that we can, we should share, as, as, especially if it doesn't cost us anything. So if I have already collected data, there's absolutely no reason for me to not share it with others. Um, and specifically from the scientific perspective, um, the reason it's important is due to something called the um, replication crisis. I don't know if you know your audience better than me. Uh, do you think that this is something people would know? I should, I should yeah, maybe tell about it in a minute. Please, please explain uh, the replication sure. crisis. Yeah. Sure. So just I'll, I'll give it just a quick minute. Um, the idea in science is that if I have an experimental design and I run it and I get a certain set of results, and then I give it to you, Nick, and you run it, and you, you're supposed to get very similar results, maybe the exact same results, because what we're trying to do is measure properties of reality, right? Um, and the way we make sure that that is indeed what's going on is by replicating. So I have my design, and I run it, and then you run my design, and you make sure that you got the same thing, because maybe what I got was by mistake, random, I don't know, whatever, anything could happen. And this is something that has been absolutely not done, especially in psychology, but also health sciences for most of this, I would say, second half of the 20th century. And then um, in uh, 2011, a few notable psychologists published this paper. Uh, they tried to replicate 100 canonical psychology experiments, and 67 did not replicate. So less than half of what we think we know in social psychology is actually for real. And even then, some of that, the effects are much smaller than what was originally found. And then that started this whole like, oh shit, Every, all the foundations to the entire scientific structure are all rotten to the core. What do we do right. now? And then a lot of people, you know, the old guard are like, whoa, it's fine. We've been doing this forever and we don't need to change anything. And the young guys like me um, are saying, well, maybe there is something we can do. And the best thing we can do is we can just share everything we do openly. And then other people can make sure that we did our work properly. We didn't hide anything. We didn't mess around. We didn't, because there's a lot of ways to make your results fit your theory. And that is a bad, bad practice. It's good short term for your career, but it's bad for the field long term because your results will not replicate and other people are going to try and build on what you did and it's going to fail. And it's, just it's as kind of, sorry, sorry, Rotten Karen. Sorry, just as an aside, this is capitalism at work. This is publish or perish. This is people only caring about getting ahead in their careers because the publishing is the currency that they need. And yeah, this is the, the perverse incentive system that we have in academia that needs to be changed. Sorry, what did you want to say? Yeah, no, I, I, it's exactly what I was going to say. Like, this is open science is anti-capitalist, anti anti-monetization, 
know, if you go back to psychology, and I, I hold a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and Computing as well, um, if you look at Freud, Freud was, was a deeply unscientific process, you know, behind uh, the majority of his work, uh, ultimately weaponized by Edward Bernays, his nephew. And then the entire modern uh, world of PR and marketing was sort of boosted and created off the back of, you know, <laughs> you know, all, all sorts of problems with our, with our identity around sex and sexualization and, and, and those things. And even things like the Rosenhan experiment or what's also known as the thud experiment sort of going in and suddenly a group of researchers actively getting interred in, in psychedelic, uh, sorry, psychiatric rehabilitation uh, facilities across the US. And those people keeping them there for months, even though there's nothing wrong with them, apart from they said, I just hear a voice in my head saying this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like, it, it completely calls out the, the screwed up nature of even science and how science was done yep. to their relationship to capitalism and whatever. And you can even go into, you know, open prisons and, and how, you know, decarceration is a positive thing versus an active capitalist society around prison populations, places like the US, for, for example, as well. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I've worked with people in open science and it's like this beautiful world of, of, of sharing. But is there is there a point where, you know, we get this, you know, we can replicate. There are thousands of people out there. How can we trust that everyone's doing the same thing? You know, where, where are the where are these boundaries of, uh, you know, of control, and, and this comes back to microdosing. You know, how how do, how do you know everyone's kind of doing it the same thing, taking it at the same time with the same kind of doses or the same kind of, uh, you know, resiliency to the effects of of LSD microdose or whatever. Yeah, I'm very happy you ask. Um, I think that the most important thing we can do to keep people accountable is what's called pre-registration. Right now, the way science is done most of the time is people just, there's so many metaphors for this. It's like you, it's, there's, sorry, you're going to have to cut this out. I'm like babbling. Okay, I, I can edit these things as well, Rose. I'm okay, sorry. sorry. Um, the way science is being done right now is um, people just ask a thousand questions and then they only report the few questions that got significant results. And that often means that those significant results just happen by chance and not mm. systematically. What pre-registration does is you say in advance what you're about to do, you write up your entire uh, plan and you then it's, it remains uh, embargoed so no one can access it. But when the time comes for you to uh, submit your manuscript to a journal, you also show your pre-registration and you say, look, this was my plan. And then you show this is what I did and the two match. And if they don't match, then I am explicit about it. This is something that only occurred to me later. Or this is an exploratory analysis that we should take with a grain of salt. And this is how we keep people accountable. You basically keep yourself accountable. You stick to your plan. Instead of uh, bringing a bunch of, you want to build a house, You get what you do is first you make a plan and then you order the parts and then the parts make a house. And what people are doing in science is they just order a bunch of parts and then try and build whatever house they can out of it. And the parts that they ended up not using, they just sweep under the rug. And that's dangerous. So what I would encourage anyone who reads scientific work is don't believe it if it's not pre-registered. 
Right. So this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. We, you know, we, 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 we've literally gone from psychedelics and work you're doing into open science. And I just want to bring it back. You know, what's next for the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Science? And, uh, and how are you tapping into that open science community with the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, so I think um, my colleagues and I published a paper about the importance of open science and psychedelics a few months ago. And I think it was well received. Um, we are trying to, whenever I talk to another uh, researcher, I encourage them to pre-register and use open science. And I say that I'm, I'm always happy to help. So if any of your listeners are scientists or science enthusiasts and they want to talk about that, I am more than happy. Please reach out to me. I'm, I love talking about open science. You may not have noticed this about me, but I love talking about open science. Um, I've chatted to a lot of people over the years. It, it, it's so good because everyone, everything from you know, splicing DNA to, you know, experimenting with, with all different kinds of substance, whatever. It's just, it, it's, it's a beautiful new world. And uh, it's a direct affront to the, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar industry of big pharma. Mm -hmm, for sure. And then in terms of the, um, our plans, uh, we are hopefully going to start our microdosing trial soon. We've been working on it for quite a while and we, We've run into some issues, but we're, I think we've pretty much dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's practically there. Um, but yeah, if uh, people are interested in chatting about that also, they feel free to shoot me an email. We are not recruiting. So if you want to be included in the trial, we are not recruiting yet. So don't email me about that. Yeah, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a link to your, your paper on open science and psychedelics. So I'm also gonna put you, uh, a link to uh, you know uh, where people can contact you and, and read more about the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Science. But the, this is truly a fascinating uh, conversation. I've been I've been following psychedelics and, and that movement over the last few years, and even like five years ago, you know, people in the workplaces that I was working in were like, "You can't talk about this," <laughs> and it's like, "You wait, you just wait." And and now we're at this point that we are in the psychedelic renaissance and, and wrote some it's absolutely great to have people like you on the ground doing this work and it's 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 fabulous to be uh connected with you can you just tell people where they can contact you uh thanks very much for the kind words yeah for sure um i think the best way to contact me is either through uh the the center for psychedelic science uh website which is psychedelicscience.ca or if they want to contact me directly uh, my website is petranker.com and we'll put those links down in the description of this podcast. Uh, Rotem, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. Uh, we could probably talk about this for, for hours and hours, and we, and we may do that when we can actually finally meet in person and grab a coffee. <laughs> That'd be <laughs> fun. When, when, yeah. when the world is, is, is less crazy. So Rotem Petranka from the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Science and uh, the Psychedelic Studies Research Programme at the University of Toronto. I want to say thank you very much for your time. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Nick. This was an absolute delight. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you.